Okay, so uh, the author of Hebrews has been comparing Christ to uh, angels and to prophets, and last week we looked at the transition into the next section, Jesus greater than Moses. Uh, that's, there's a consistency to that, right? Moses is uh, the greatest Old Testament prophet, arguably. Uh, he's certainly the one that, uh, that the Old Testament speaks of as being the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, in as much as it, it's, uh, he's the only prophet, Scripture says, uh, is a model of the Messiah, right? In Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, I'm going to raise a prophet up like you and my people will listen to him, and uh, that's Christ. And so, consistent with that motif, he, he goes to Moses next, and we looked at that in the first six verses last week. And in so doing, he begins more explicitly uh, than ever in this, at this point in the book to, uh, to reveal the underlying Exodus account that's uh, informing everything that the author of Hebrews is saying. We've already had one warning passage, and this morning we come to a second. Uh, in light of everything that he has said, the author of Hebrews says in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, uh, this, is, uh, this is on the one hand kind of a throwaway introduction, right? He's just introducing a quote, therefore, uh, you know, but notice he attributes the words which are actually from Psalm 95. Uh, and they're ascribed to David. He attributes those words to the Holy Spirit, consistent with what Scripture teaches us, that the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit. And so uh, little things like that we're going to look at here. I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer, and then we'll take a look at the text. Father, thank you for uh, the, the book of Hebrews, for the truth that we find here, for the lesson that it is to us, the encouragement that it is to us. We pray that we would... Uh, understand it rightly, uh, that it would be used by your Spirit, your, who would be at work in the reading of it, uh, to make us more like Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the author of Hebrews transitions here, continues uh, with, again, I, I'm going to keep pointing them out. These are called logical conjunctions. They tie two things together by the logic that they share. In light of everything that he said in the first six verses of chapter 3, there's a consequence to this. There's a logical follow-on to this truth. Because of that truth, the Holy Spirit says, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day, or as in the rebellion, on the day of resting in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, the day of testing. Rest is on my mind, because there's a lot of references to rest in this passage. The day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And here's the warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We're going to pause there. One of the things uh, that's helpful in Bible study is to pay attention to the commands. Uh, commands given in the text uh, may very well be commands that are still true today, still in effect today, if you will. I say very well may because in narrative literature, sometimes there's a, a very specific command given to a per very specific person or people in a very particular time and place that's not still in effect. Uh, so we don't just willy-nilly take all of the imperatives of Scripture uh, and assume that they're still in effect. So we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. There's an imperative from the Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, though, uh, particularly outside of the book of Acts uh, and in the letters, we do generally uh, recognize that the imperatives given there are imperatives for us today. And this is an imperative here in verse 12. Take care, brothers. Uh, there's an exhortation here, an instruction to do something. And this is the heart of this little section here. It's going to go through uh, 4.13, and it's going to be focused on the idea of rest. He's using uh, the, the reality of God having entered into his rest and then holding that rest out to us to enter and how it is that we enter it and why it is that some won't enter it. And the exhortation is to enter into it right? Not miss it. And so he goes to this quote in, uh, in verses 7 through 11, 
which is actually taken from uh, Psalm 95. So if you'll flip back in your Bibles to Psalm 95, I mentioned uh, at least last week and maybe over more than one week that when we come to these Old Testament quotations in the book of Hebrews, we ought to go back and look at those quotations in their context. And uh, this is a quote from <clears throat> Psalm 95, beginning with the very last line of verse 7. Now, the, uh, the author in Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint, and your Old Testament is translated from what's called the Masoretic text, from the Hebrew. The Septuagint, remember, is the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And it took place several centuries before Christ. So that by the time of the first century and the New Testament authors writing, that Greek translation of the Old Testament is quite commonly used outside of, uh, of Israel. Uh, remember, the Jewish people have been dispersed all over the known world. And, uh, and so as, uh, as they've been dispersed, the common language in the Mediterranean world at the time, including North Africa and the Near East, is Greek, even though the Romans are ruling. Uh, and so Greek is the common language, and some of the Jewish people who have been scattered, uh, the diaspora, uh, outside of Israel, outside of Palestine, uh, as happens with immigrant families, uh, younger generations are losing their ability to, uh, to speak and read the, uh, the Hebrew. So the Bible is translated into Greek for that diaspora community. And, uh, and so the New Testament authors, many of them, quote the Septuagint. They don't quote as often the Hebrew. I say all of that because in 95, in these verses, your, the way these verses read in Psalm 95 in your Bible is going to be slightly different than the way they read in Hebrews 3. There's absolutely no difference in substance. Uh, it's, it says exactly the same thing. Uh, there's just a, a few places where uh, things are styled a little differently. But look at Psalm 95, beginning in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are his people, uh, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Okay, that's the lead in to the quote. The author of Hebrews doesn't quote that. He starts with today, if you hear his voice. But notice in the context, the instruction, the call, is to worship and bow down. Bowing down is not just an act of worship. It's an acknowledgement of the submission and the obedience that's due to the one to whom you bow down. Come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is God and we belong to him. And we ought to worship him and serve him and obey him. And now we come to the, the point where the author of Hebrews begins his quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Ma at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now there's, uh, there's a, a historical context here that we need to make sure everybody is familiar with. He's talking about the 40 days or the 40 years of wandering in the Exodus account. Remember the people of Israel were delivered up out of Egypt uh, they came to Mount Sinai, they received the law, and they uh, made the tabernacle, and then they finally get their marching orders, and they march straight up to the promised land. Right? Don't, if you've not reviewed that history uh, in a while, or maybe you've never learned that history, the people of Israel don't leave Sinai and then wander for 40 years. Uh, it's, they're not lost. Uh, there's a reason that they wander, and in their wandering, they're not wandering because they don't know what direction to go. They're wandering because they can't go back to Egypt and they can't go into the Promised Land. There's nowhere to go. Why can't they go into the Promised Land? Because they sent the spies in, and 10 of the 12 came out with a bad report, and the people of Israel refused to believe God 
when he said, if you will go into it, I will give it to you. And they said, there's giants in the land and we can't go in. They'll, they'll destroy us. And because of their faithlessness, they were uh, wandering for 40 years, wandering because they had nowhere to go. Why 40 years? What's special about 40 years? Because 40 years is a generation. It was 40 years so that everyone over the age of 20, on the day that they refused to go into the land, will die in the wilderness rather than enter into the promised land. And the promised land was promised to be to them a place of rest. So you see how all of this fits together, right? God rests on the seventh day of creation. His rest begins. He rests, uh, that is, ceases from the work of creation. But he continues in that rest. The seventh day is the only day of creation that doesn't have the formula at the end, there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Uh, there is a sense in which, though we know that the literal day ended, right? The sun eventually went down on the seventh day, and that day was over. But the text doesn't record an ending to that day. Why? Because God's rest didn't end. He didn't pause for one day and then get back to work. He entered into his rest. He was done forever with the work of creation. So he enters into his rest. What we're going to see the author of Hebrews do is say to us, that he, he's still in that rest. And uh, I, I can't remember, I, I think I said something about this when, when I uh, was preaching on this uh, in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Uh, but that rest is, is far less about ceasing from the labor for the sake of stopping. Right? God certainly didn't get tired. What's the point in ceasing from the labor? It's to enjoy it. Right? It's to enter into the enjoyment of what he has made. And God invites us into that enjoyment. <clears throat> he invites us into that rest. Again, not for the mere sake of us no longer laboring, though that is true for us. We continue to labor. Right? So it'll be a resting from that labor for us. But it's also a resting for the purpose of enjoying. And we see that, don't we? Uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, and the new heavens and the new earth as they are portrayed for us in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, it's a re-entrance into the Garden of Eden, only this time not with the potential of all of the work that needs to be done, but with all of the work having been completed. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth will be finished on that day, and we will, we will simply enjoy God and all of the blessings of ours that are his. God in the history of redemption, he gives us a little glimpse of this. The whole story of the Exodus, we've talked about this before, the whole story of the Exodus is the whole story of redemption, right? Uh, it's, it, we can take all of the elements of the Exodus account and see how those elements point to uh, heaven and hell and a redeemer and how it is that the Redeemer does his work, and why it is that that work is necessary. All of that is there, right? If you've not heard that before, uh, right, the, the Exodus begins with the plagues, which the last plague is death, and Israel is delivered from that death because of the blood of the Lamb that spread on the doorposts of their homes. Egypt is not delivered. Notice all are under the threat. In delivering Israel from Egypt, God does not say, in that last plague, I'm going to do this to Egypt. The, the angel of death comes through and is going to take all of the firstborn. Israel is not spared in that respect. Israel is spared because having been told of the means of salvation, they have believed it. They slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and consume the lamb in their homes that evening. Uh, and so that's, that's a, an image of Christ, our Passover lamb, whose blood delivers us from slavery to sin. And the whole image goes on all the way through the Exodus and into the promised land, which represents the new heavens and the new earth that we're moving toward. So I'm moving kind of quickly here, but it, I'm, I'm trying to kind of do it over and over again. So hopefully it's sinking in, right? The, the promised land in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, it is not itself the final fulfillment of that promise. It looks forward to that new heavens and the new earth. And what is the new heavens and the new earth for us? 
but a resting, finally, from all of the labor that God has, has placed in our hands and all of the fighting that we have with sin and the world. So resting from that in order to enjoy God. And so when we come back to this microcosm of redemptive history, the Exodus account all the way through the conquest, entering into that new heavens and that new earth, entering into that promised land is an entering into rest. And because the people of Israel in that generation were faithless, God says they will not enter into my rest. And in the historical sense, it means they're not going into the promised land, and they don't. They all die. In the spiritual sense, though, it means that they're not going to enter into that eternal rest that belongs to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And again, because of their disobedience. So back in Psalm 95 here, we've got the reason why. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, so that's what ought to be, six and seven, right? We ought to worship and bow down and kneel because he is our God and we are his people. That's what ought to be. Now the exhortation, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the, the example here is the Exodus. Meribah and Massah are, are particular places where particular acts of faithlessness happened in the Exodus account. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and, on, and as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When you put me to the test and put me to the proof... Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation. That's the 40 years of wandering, faithless generation. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, with that history lesson in, in mind, and the psalmist and his exhortation to the people of God not to, to harden their hearts, but to hear the voice of God, we turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, and the exhortation that the author of Hebrews is going to give us here. So he's quoted that passage, and in verse 12 again, we'll pick up, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He, he goes into a, uh, an antidote to... Uh, that evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God uh, in the next verses. But I want to pause here and just for a moment talk about the idea of falling away. We've talked about this before uh, here in Hebrews with the last warning passage, as a matter of fact. Uh, the idea that, uh, that he's combating here, remember in context, is a group of people who know the Old Testament may have even themselves, prior to conversion, been Jewish or been Gentile converts or uh, God-fears in the synagogues, and they are tempted to either mix that religion with Christianity or to go back to that religion wholesale. That's the, the temptation and the temptation isn't always for us, <clears throat> especially if, uh, if we're, we're mixing things together. The temptation is always to think that, uh, you know, and I'll say it one way, there's lots of different ways to, to try and make sense of it in your head and justify yourself, but uh, I've prayed the prayer, I've been baptized, I go to church on Sunday, I'm generally a good person, right? These are, are the things we tell ourselves when we want to engage in or dabble in things that we know we're not supposed to be engaging in or dabbling in, or when we're not doing the things we know we ought to be doing, right? I'm, I don't go to church regularly, but, you know, I, I read my Bible, and I know who Jesus is, and I prayed the prayer, and, and I, I, I trust Jesus, uh, and I say my prayers at night and repent of my sins, uh, and what we're saying to ourselves, anytime we justify uh, any, any sin, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, what we're saying, whether we consciously realize it or not, is this could never take me away. I could never fall away from the faith. I can afford to do this thing. 
and it's going to be okay. And the author of Hebrews is saying no. No, you have to believe and repent, and, and obedience flows out of a believing, repentant heart. And if you won't do that, if you won't be regularly engaged in those ordinary means of grace, being in the Word and in prayer, being together with God's people in worship, which the author of Hebrews is explicitly going to eventually encourage us to. So I'm not just inserting, you know, sort of the pastor wants the seats full every Sunday. You ought to be here on Sunday. Uh, and, uh, and I'm going to, you know, take advantage of an opportunity to try and drive that home. The author of Hebrews means this, and he's going to say it eventually, uh, that we should not neglect the gathering together of the elect. And so look at what he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Don't think that you're better than the Israelites in the Exodus. Be careful. Don't be filled with pride and believe you could never fall away. Instead, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, so you see what I'm getting at here? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, this is a little sin. It's not a big sin. Nobody knows about this sin. It doesn't hurt anybody, uh, and it's not hurting me. It's going to be just fine, and Jesus forgives. Uh, that is the deceitfulness of sin, and it hardens the heart. And in hardening the heart, it can lead to an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Uh, you don't know that that hardened heart that you're, you're curating won't one day be the source of a thought that maybe all this church stuff isn't true after all. Right? When that thought attacks your heart, a hardened heart is the most vulnerable to it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do this. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice the importance of Christian community, even in this passage. Exhort one another. Right? One of the ways that the author of Hebrews is encouraging us uh, not to have uh, our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is for each of us to be encouraging one another. We need to be hearing from one another both the, the hope of the gospel, the promise that's held out in the gospel, but also the, the call to believe and repent. Uh, and the, in the call to repent is the implicit call to obey, Right? This is one of the, the primary ways that God has designed us in order to help us avoid this evil, unbelieving heart is that we would be exhorting one another every day, exhorting one another in the gospel, exhorting one another to obedience. We have a, uh, a limited amount of time in which to believe in Christ and to continue in that faithfulness before Christ comes again or we die. When, when we die or Christ comes again, it's no longer today. And at that point, you've missed the opportunity. Uh, this is a, a passage that is, uh, is an excellent proof text for the idea that when you die, you're not going to stand in front of God and he's going to say one more time, okay, look, now that you're here, you see what this is all about, I'm going to give you one last chance. That's not how it works. At death, or on the day that the trumpet sounds and Christ returns, that's the end of today. And it's the end of any opportunity to believe the gospel. And those who are not believing at that point will go into and suffer the wrath of God for eternity. This is why the author of Hebrews is so insistent on exhorting them, as long as it is called today, Exhort one another, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Uh, I, I hope it's not true of anybody in here, uh, but there's also out there the idea that somehow the sinner's prayer is fire insurance, right? Uh, you, you heard the gospel and you said, okay, I buy it. I'm in. What do I do? Oh, pray the prayer. Okay. I prayed the prayer. What do I do now? Uh, well, you go to church, you read your Bible, you pray. Uh, okay, but I'm saved. 
Yep, you're saved. Okay, then I'm, I'm not doing the church and the Bible and the praying thing, right? I'm going to go ahead and go back to the way I was living because I've done the thing I was supposed to do. I checked the boxes. I'm saved now, and I can move on. And, uh, and eventually I'll die or Jesus will come back, and I'll, I'll hand him the little, you know, metaphorical ticket that says, nope, prayed the prayer. You, you've got to let me in. Uh, that's not how it works either. We must indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. Uh, we, we must be pursuing Christ and holiness. Uh, thanks be to God, confessing our sin and being forgiven when we fail, but that's what we, we are to be pursuing. He goes back and he quotes again. He says, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now he's going to go back to that history lesson. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Faithlessness is the reason they didn't enter into the rest. So what is he doing here in, uh, in verse uh, 16 through 18, or through 19 there at the end of the chapter? He's, he's using the example, imagine this, right? Uh, imagine I were to exhort you, right? And, and I hope we do exhort you guys regularly to believe the gospel, repent of your sins, pursue Christ. And the response I got from you was... Matt remembers it all, saints. Why, why do you keep bringing that up? And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you know, there was a congregation one time full of people who were members in good standing. Not a single one of them went into heaven. All of them died in unbelief. The whole congregation so the comfort that the author of Hebrews' original audience might, might be tempted to take is, oh, we're in. We belong. We're the people of God. We're members of the church. And the author of Hebrews is saying, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not exactly how it works. You are not without danger here. An entire generation of the people of God died in faithlessness, right? That's why he's, he's making the comparison or the, the, uh, the, the note here he's pointing to. He says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Notice, heard but rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell? And to whom did he swear, you will not enter into my rest, but those who were disobedient? And yet this was the people of God who were led out of Egypt. And so you, you can't rest on the idea that you belong to a community. No matter how true that community is. This, the, the church is made by God. It's not a man-made institution. God formed the church. And God builds his church. This is God's community. But you are not going to be saved merely by being a member of it. Uh, you're saved by believing. So we see, verse 19, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They were in the community, but they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they didn't obey. And that lack of obedience was, was the expression of their unbelief. And so let me pause there. Questions or insights? I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that off the top of my head. Yeah, that's the standard. That, that's the, the, the most common. So the question is, does the word heard here, in the Hebrew, uh, the verb to hear, uh, often in, it implies uh, a lot more than simply the physical act of hearing. Uh, it implies obedience, etc. cetera. The, the reality is, uh, I don't think that there's anything inherent to the Hebrew word that means that. 
Uh, I think that in the context in which it's used in the Old Testament, the context gives it that meaning. Uh, and I think that the, the, the action of hearing in those contexts always implies belief, right? Not that the one who heard believed, but that the one who heard is bound to believe, right? Uh, has, has an obligation to believe what was heard. Uh, and, and so I do think that that's, that's present here. Akuo is the Greek verb for to hear, uh, and is a very, that's the, the most common verb for that, uh, that action. Um, other questions? J.D. Uh, yeah, so did that generation that died in the wilderness actually go to hell? Were they actually unsaved? Uh, and all the testimony of Scripture is that they were actually unsaved. Now, I, I think it would be unwise to try and suggest that every individual uh, in that group was unsaved. But, uh, but as a group, Scripture characterizes them as being actual unbelievers. So, we also see, it's an interesting little detail that's easy to miss, but when they cross the, the Jordan, uh, the very first thing that they do when they're in the promised land is, uh, is they, they have to circumcise all the males. Isn't that interesting? Shouldn't they have been circumcised already? Why weren't they? Because that generation was faithless. They didn't believe. Uh, and not believing, they didn't do what they were supposed to. Uh, so an entire, uh, you know, generation, a, a whole people has to be, uh, has to, to receive the sign. But not only does that imply the faithlessness of the generation in the wilderness, it implies the faith of the generation that went across and entered, right? Because they, it, it wasn't detached. They weren't just told, oh, there's this ritual you're supposed to do, go do the ritual. Uh, by actually circumcising all of the males, they were expressing their, their belief in the covenant promises. And again, we won't say every single one of that generation went to heaven, right? Um, but, but they are characterized as being a faithful generation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're not getting into the promised land no matter what. But that's a pretty good yeah. opportunity to bring faith. Right, yeah. No, yeah, I wouldn't rule any of them out, uh, but as a generation, they're characterized that way as unbelievers. Oh, yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah, one of the, the great uh, gifts that uh, 3, 7 through 4, 13 is to the church is by putting salvation in the context of that seventh day rest, that Sabbath that God enjoys and that he invites us into. And it puts our own Sabbath Sunday uh, into context as well, right? That, that the gift God's given us on Sunday is a foretaste of that eternal rest that's going to be ours. Uh, every Sunday, if it's if it's recognized as a Sabbath, if it's recognized as that rest, is a reminder that that rest is held out to us, uh, that it's that rest we strive to enter, as the author of Hebrews says over in chapter 4, 
Uh, and so <clears throat> uh, it's, a, it's yet another way of talking about our salvation. And as so many of the, the ways we talk about salvation work, it, it's, a, it's, it's multifaceted, right? So that we, we, we can say rest, and it's really easy to get caught up in the anticipation of laying our burdens down. But we're going to lay them down in order to enjoy God, right? To enjoy Jesus Christ and fellowship with him. True, face-to-face fellowship with him. That's what the rest is. That's the rest that God enjoys now, and it's the rest he invites us into. And he gives us a foretaste of that rest every Sunday, and we're exhorted by his word to hold out. Continue in the faith. Don't give up. Don't give in to an evil, unbelieving heart. Don't let your heart be hardened by drifting off into what you tell yourself are just little sins, not a big deal, but it's those little sins that begin to harden your heart and eventually lead to an evil, unbelieving heart. And so the author of Hebrews gives us this this warning. And it's uh, consistent with the author of Hebrews and his his genius. Uh, He's using as an example here the very people who are engaged in and ought to be doing the things that his original audience wants to go back and do, right? If, if his original audience is saying, let's mix a little bit of that old-time religion into this Christianity, let's get some of that, that Jewish faith in here, let's get some of that Moses in here, and the author of Hebrews goes, let's talk about the people uh, in the Exodus, Let's talk about how that worked out for them, right? It's not all of those laws, but it's belief. So, okay, uh, we've got time to go on. We're not going to get very far before the end of Sunday school, uh, but we're going to continue. Let's look at chapter 4. Look at at how uh, it's almost dizzying the logical conjunctions. I mean, they're just piling up. If we go all the way back to the beginning of 3, Uh, Chapter 3, he says, therefore, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, for Jesus has been counted. Verse 4, for every house is built. Uh, And I'm just skimming. I'm probably missing some, but you get to 7, therefore. uh, And then uh, we come down uh, to verse 16, 4. Verse 14, 4. These are all, he, he just keeps piling up all of the the logical connections here in the arguments that he's making. Uh, So, verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, now he comes back to his current audience. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Once again, we've not managed yet to escape the gravitational pull of, of his, all of his arguments of messages being proclaimed and heard, right? Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us. Right? We received a message, just like they did. It's talking about the message that Moses received on Sinai. That's the message that came to them. We've received a message just like they did. But the message they heard didn't benefit them. Right? There's no benefit in the message itself. The message, we, we can stand on a street corner and proclaim the gospel all day long. It will be of no value to those walking past if they do not then believe the message that they've heard. It It in fact condemns them. That's right. That's right. And it does the people of Israel in the Old Testament as well, right? Because the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He makes a distinction here between heard and listened, right? Uh, Using listened here the way we do with our kids when we say, you didn't listen to me. And the kid's like, I heard you. No, no, you heard me, but you didn't listen to me, right? 
Uh, those who believed, they were not united to those who believed by faith. Faith is what unites us to God and therefore to one another in God. For we who believed, who have believed, enter that rest. That's, uh, again, he, the, the author of Hebrews does this. He just throws these little things in and you, you can move right past them without catching uh, that line right there. It's the heart of this entire section. Everything from 3.7 all the way through to 4.13 just got summarized in that single line. For we who have believed enter that rest. Period. The people of Israel didn't enter the rest because they didn't believe. We ought to be careful to enter that rest by believing. We who have believed entered that rest... As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. The author of Hebrews here is doing what, what I've already done this morning. He's drawing together God's seventh day rest with the rest that's held out to us. He's, th this is him making that connection. God entered his rest, but we are still invited to enter into that rest. He continues to rest, and we are invited to enter into it. He's somewhere spoken of the seventh day this way, verse 4. So here he's going back to that seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So what he's doing is he's, he's putting these two arguments right next to one another, these two passages. God enters into his rest. They will not enter into my rest. And he's saying, why, why would he say that? What's he talking about? What he's talking about is us being invited to join him in that rest he started on the seventh day. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Right? That God's rest didn't end. It continues. We are invited to enter into it, and there's still time to enter into it. Therefore, it remains for some to enter. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David. So here he's now put the, the quote from Psalm 95 in the mouth of the Holy Spirit and David. So I'm, I'm kind of doing a systematic theology break really quickly. Right? He doesn't say the Holy Spirit wrote it, not David. He doesn't say David wrote it, not the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say David wrote it and he was inspired by a pretty picture, right? David and the Holy Spirit are both the authors of Psalm 95. The Spirit inspired David to write Psalm 95, and so both are authors. So verse 7, back to the, the author of Hebrews' argument. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So here's his point right there. David in Psalm 95 is long, long after Joshua. He's long, long after the rest that Moses wasn't allowed to enter into and the rest that the people of Israel weren't allowed to enter into in that generation. That rest in its historical sense, entering into the promised land, that's come and gone. David is in the promised land now, generations later, right, talking about entering into the rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, so that the rest that's pictured in entering into the promised land in Joshua is not the true rest. Uh, the, the fancy theological term we use is eschatological, uh, from the Greek eschatos, which means last, and ology is the study of last things, eschatology. Uh, the, what we read in Joshua about them going into the land, conquering it, and settling down is a kind of rest, but it's not the actual rest that God promises to his people. It's an eschatological rest coming at the end of days, right? So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And here, he's, he's kind of getting caught up in the already and the not yet. Because we have, those of us who have trusted in Christ, 
are repenting of our sins, we have entered into that rest. Past tense. But we also are anticipating a perfect rest that's future for us. And so he's not saying here that it's, if you've believed, you've entered into the rest, congratulations, those are the winnings, right? That's all you get. Uh, don't complain. We've entered into that rest in a, a partial sense, in a, uh, a cloudy sense, uh, as opposed to the, the clarity and perfection of the final rest. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And here's the final exhortation with respect to rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is, the same sort of disobedience as the people of Israel in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That would be terrifying if the instruction was uh, to keep the law, right? To be reminded that we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If that's an accounting with respect to the law, we are doomed. But it's not. It's an accounting with respect to believing the gospel. It's belief. And the author of Hebrews is very clear about this throughout the passage, isn't he? Starting all the way up, uh, if not implied earlier than verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And that's the contrast he keeps making between those of us who are entering into that rest and those who did not and will not. The difference between those who will spend an eternity in the presence of God and in fellowship with him and those who will spend an eternity who in that eternity will only experience God as wrath. The difference is belief and unbelief. And so are we believing? And will we continue to believe? That's what the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to. So I'll pause again, and we, uh, we have two minutes left if there are any questions or comments. Graham. Uh, today is a day in the same sense that the seventh day of creation is a day, right? It's, a, it's ongoing. Uh, in, in the case of this day, our day, we, we get one day in which to believe, right? That is not a 24-hour day. Uh, and if you're caught up in the 24-hour day creation argument, I'm sorry, but this particular day is not a 24-hour day. It's a day that, that began with, uh, with Adam and Eve and will continue until Christ comes again uh, in general or until you die particularly. Uh, that's when the day ends. Uh, so it's not a 24-hour day. And his point when he says, again, he appoints a certain day today, uh, of course, that today is a quote from Psalm 95. Uh, and his point is that by David bringing this up so long after uh, the, the conquest and Joshua, the author's argument is that the window hasn't closed. God said through David that, there's a, that today is the day. But the it was today is the day under Joshua. So what's going on? He's saying, well, it's still today. The day hasn't closed yet. And so it, it will, yeah. Uh, so to put this in, in common uh, English language today, it's not too late. You still have time. Believe and repent and enter into that rest. And if you are believing, keep believing 
Because the day is going to end. And when it ends, you will enter into that rest perfectly forever. So that's, that's the argument there. It's, it is a little convoluted, uh, the way he, he tells it. There's several places where you kind of go, that's not what I thought he was going to say. Um, but he keeps coming back to that, not, shall not enter my rest. And what he's exhorting us to is to enter that rest by believing. Now is the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, uh, a good observation, Billy. By, by calling that window of opportunity today, uh, it, it, it's really another way of saying now. Now is the time. Uh, today is the day. Okay, uh, let me close this in prayer, and next week we'll pick up with chapter 4, verse 14. And here we're going to, uh, you're, you see the heading in your Bible, uh, if it's an ESV, it's Jesus the Great High Priest. Uh, we're, we're really going to spend the rest of the author of, our, of, of Hebrews' argument somehow in the, the priesthood. Whether it's Christ as priest, Christ as sacrifice, uh, the, the atonement that's made at the temple, uh, the covenant context for what the priests are doing in the Old Testament, how Christ is the priest of a better covenant. Uh, that's going to take up the, the rest of the book of Hebrews uh, up through, I think it's about chapter 10. Uh, once we get to 11, it shifts gears. So uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your patience uh, that this day has gone on for so long uh, as you continue the work in the world of building the church. We pray that if there are any uh, in this room this morning who have not believed, uh, Father, that they would believe, uh, that they would uh, believe and repent, that they would strive to enter into this rest. Uh, Father, we pray for those who are already believing that we would not be so full of pride as to believe uh, that we could never fall away, uh, that we, we would never, uh, our hearts could never be hardened to the point that we would begin to doubt uh, and be filled with unbelief. Father, we pray that you would preserve us from that. Uh, and we pray that we would grieve and hate every sin as we are aware of it, uh, and that you would make us aware of all of our sin, that we would be putting that sin to death, uh, pursuing righteousness, looking forward to the day that Christ comes again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.